This is the Flatlining Podcast. I got a lot of numbers for you, Frank. So CNBC viewers, listeners, readers, they know just how much healthcare costs have risen, but we have the fresh numbers out. Now that we have kind of some of these movements here, right, to highlight just how bad it's gotten if that recent inflation data wasn't enough to trigger you. Here's the latest from the Kaiser Family Foundation. They do a lot of tracking and research of the healthcare business. If you are covered by an employer-sponsored healthcare plan, family premiums have now risen by a whopping 47% over the course of the last 10 years, which depressingly has outpaced wage growth, which has grown about 31%. And then in that span, general levels of inflation overall up about roughly 23%. The number of Americans who go to emergency rooms is on the rise. And you know those visits are not cheap. One study from 2017 found they cost all of us some $76 billion a year. And with big profits like that on the table, an NBC News investigation finds private equity firms are increasingly getting involved more and more. These are firms that basically invest in businesses with the goal of making more money generating big returns on relatively pretty short timelines. Critics say sometimes at the expense of patients. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been the past couple times, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you doing? I'm good, Matthew. A little uh, little jet lagged. I flew in last night from from Denver, uh, but other than that, not bad. Hope you're doing well. I I am. Tell me tell me what you were doing in Denver. Uh, I was at a conference with a, a bunch of radiologists, um, sort of. Uh, talking and presenting on, you know, the future of healthcare, where all this is going. And I think I made things about as clear as mud. So, you know, job well done. <laughs> well, that's good. We can we can try and wash away some of that mud here on, on the program today, if yeah. you'd like, uh, but we'll, we'll see where we get to. You know, I had a thought the other night, and it's something that we probably should have been promoting early on, and I haven't, and that's that Fulcrum Strategies, as well as you and me, are on Twitter. And if you follow us on Twitter, it's a good way to stay in touch with the kinds of things that we are reading and looking at throughout the week. Uh, you can find links to our Twitter on flatlining.net or at fsdoc.com. Uh, Ron Harrigan is at Ron Harrigan on Twitter, and I am at Radio Handley. So be sure to follow us there as well. This week, we wanted to spend some time talking about uh, big insurance. And one of the reasons we wanted to do that is that it always seems to be a big talking point, especially as we get into election years, that insurance companies make too much money, and that's the reason why our healthcare is too expensive. You know, if we distribute the profits to be somewhere else, it's going to lower the cost for everyone. And we're going to dive a little bit into that today and see whether or not that's actually the case. Uh, but what I want to start with, Ron, is a, a brief history, in a sense, of how we kind of got the employer-based system we have in America, because it's fairly unique to the rest of the world. So if you don't mind giving us a primer on that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly unique and it's fairly recent. I mean, you know, health insurance or employer-based health insurance hasn't been around for 100 years or 20, you know, it's a fairly recent occurrence. And there's, there's different sort of opinions on the actual first version of it, but it all is roughly around the same time frame in the, you know, 1920s, 1930s-ish. Um, I know when I worked at Kaiser, they like to claim that they were the first insurance and that it happened around the building of the Hoover Dam. Um, Henry okay. Kaiser was involved with that. And he had this physician, Sidney Garfield, who um, he worked with. And, you know, they were building at the dam site. So these people didn't go back home after work. They had little, you know, almost little city set up there for the workers and their families. And Sidney Garfield went to Henry Kaiser and said, hey, they need medical care for their families, their kids, et cetera. He said, and if you give me a nickel out of each one of their paychecks, I'll set up a little clinic there and I'll provide them all their health care. And they, they, Kaiser likes to call that the first sort of okay. prepaid insurance. And there are other examples, but it's roughly the same time frame in that 20s and 30s time frame when we started to get this idea or concept of health insurance and um, the employers sort of paying for that. 
So as that developed then in, into the system we had now, I'm sure it greatly expanded after the uh, the Second World War, uh, especially because after the Second World War, you saw England create the NHS. Um, and we had, you know, Veterans Administration, uh, the Indian Health Services here in the U.S. Why didn't we adopt that sort of system that they had adopted in England after our victory in Europe? Well, and, and so it actually it, it started a little bit before the end of the Second World War, but okay. it really took off afterwards. And so what happened, and, and this is a little bit of a, you know, a, a perfect storm of events, if you will, is in, in our country, you know, in this in sort of this incredibly growing free market um, economy, we had a couple of events happen. One, during the war, when all the boys were overseas fighting, we had this massive ramp up in factory production, but the government put in wage controls. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't offer more money to get access to what little labor pool there was there. So these factories couldn't try to staff up by paying more because the government put in wage controls. So what they did was they found other ways to compensate and they started paying for your health insurance. That wasn't a wage, but in essence it sort of was because then the, the, you know, the employee didn't have to pay for it. So that was sort of that first step. And then after the end of the Second World War, again, now we had this booming economy. All the boys have come home. Um, we're still ramping up. Our, our economy's growing very greatly. There was a change in the IRS laws that basically said that health insurance was a tax, was a tax uh, avoidant event. It was, mm -hmm. it was an expense by the employers that they could take off their taxes. Now, the interesting thing about this is they didn't say that for car insurance or they didn't say right. that for homeowners insurance. Mm -hmm was health insurance. So now there was a financial incentive for companies to convert part of your payroll, if you will, into this benefit. And that's when it really took off um, as a way to compete for labor talent and a way to avoid paying corporate taxes. They could provide health insurance. And and that was a little bit different than what happened in, in Britain with the NHS or in other countries. Um, and so it was really a function of what happened with the tax laws a growing economy, and, and it went from there, and we've never been able to get in control of it since then. So with the development then of employee-based insurance, why did uh, the federal government see it necessary to create programs like Medicare and Medicaid? Well, if you think about it, um, that tax incentive handled pretty much everybody that was working. Mm -hmm. And so we now had a system, and, and, and at the time it was working very well. If you had a job, you pretty much had insurance, and so that was great. But that left off two bodies of people, the people who weren't working, which are typically the unemployed, poor, mm -hmm. and the retired. We had to figure out a way to handle those. You know, what do you do with those populations? And that's what got born out of Medicare to handle the elderly and Medicaid to handle the poor. And at the time that that was being done, I think Medicare was in 65, uh, when that got done, then it was like, okay, now we've got it fixed. If When you're in your working years, you get covered by your employer. If you don't have a job, we've got this safety net of Medicaid. And then when after you retired, we got Medicare. Problem solved. And there we have it. So Medicare, in a sense then, and Medicaid really did reinforce the line of we are having an employer-based system in this country. We are not going to be relying on the federal government for health care. Yes, absolutely. It shored up the idea that, um, you know, the bulk of the population for the bulk of their time is going to be employed. And that's how we're going to do it, through an employer-based system. It was well-founded. The employers liked it. The economy liked it. The, the politicians liked it. And we'll just fix those parties that fall out, the elderly and the poor, through these social programs. So then if Medicare uh, was created to provide insurance for those that were retired, no longer working, why is it then that we now see people advocating for an expansion of Medicare to cover everyone through either Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan or any sort of other uh, federalized system? Well, we actually see, and we've seen at various times, um, people try to push our system one way or the other, more, either towards more private-funded um, stuff or more government-funded stuff. And it really gets into the fact that we've got a hybrid system here. We've got a system where a huge chunk of it's handled through a free market sort of um, employer-based system, and then a big chunk of it's handled through uh, governmental um, provided Medicare and Medicaid. And so the people who believe that it's better to have all of this provided by government want to go to a Medicare for all. And, and we've seen at periods of history, the other side of that argument be, no, no, what we should do 
is we should take Medicaid and do it through block grants to the state. And we should mm -hmm. take Medicare and convert it all to insurance, um, private insurances providing those services. But we see that push-pull. The general argument that I understand from the people who want to see an expansion of the government systems, Medicare and all, for all, et cetera, has to do with that healthcare is a right. Everyone has a right to have it. It should be free to them. Uh, much like you have the right to a free and public education and other things, um, and that we need to remove the profit motivation and some of the bad things that, that they believe are happening in a free market system um, by just converting it all to Medicare for All or some government-run um, program. All right. Well, as we move on from that, let's talk a little bit about um, the history of some of the big insurers that we have in the United States. You mentioned that uh, Kaiser claims that they were one of the first uh, companies that were out there on the scene working with the Hoover Dam. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield is another one of the original uh, big insurance companies. Tell me a little bit about uh, how some of them got started uh and in what sense did they start out of a project like the Hoover Dam or did they were they started in a sense to say, hey, there's money to be made here. Let's try and do this. Yeah. So um, Kaiser was obviously started after the, the Hoover Dam project and they thought, wow, this is such a great idea. You know, let's um, let's sort of expand that. And it, and it really got its roots in California. Um, it was the first HMO and the you know first of a lot of things. But the Kaiser model was not really per se as much an insurance model as it was a delivery model. Mm -hmm. Because the Kaiser model was we will hire doctors, we will build hospitals, and then the employers will pay us that you know, nickel a paycheck or whatever it turns out to be. But they will come to us for care. That's different than just a straight insurance company who says, I'm just going to pay the bills. I'm not going right. to be a provider of care. Blue Cross actually got started more as a, as a true insurance company. I'm going to pay your hospital bill. And actually, I think the first Blue Cross bill ever paid was a um, delivery uh, in Durham, North Carolina. Hmm. Um, and uh, I forget, I think it was like $284 or something like that. It was something ridiculously low as we look at it now. Right. Um, and then the various other insurance companies, the Cigna's, you know, et cetera, um, which was a combination of Connecticut General and ING Insurance. You know, they were typically insurance companies in other lines of business, like life insurance, et cetera, that said, hey, this whole health thing might be something to get into. And then they started becoming health insurance companies. So it was kind of this organic growth. And then, as we mentioned, after the whole IRS ruling in, in World War II, then it really sort of flooded the marketplace. And I think, uh, of course, this is this is based off what I what I've seen, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. That we kind of have three sort of uh, models for insurance companies here in the United States, and one of them would be kind of the Blue Cross Blue Shield model. They're a nonprofit. They generally seem to be run by state affiliates. Uh, another version would be uh, Aetna, which uh, previously which was bought not too long ago by uh, CVS Pharmacy, and they're owned by a retail chain. And then you have your Cygnus and Uniteds that kind of stand on their own as their own um, companies. Would you add to that list or would you make any distinctions well, about those? Yeah, so a couple of uh, clarifications and distinctions sure. on that. So, yeah, Blue Cross is is an association model. It's like a franchise model. The, the Blue Cross Association owns the name and the rights to the marketing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they license that out to various entities. Much like if you took a McDonald's, you know, they license right. out their franchises. Now, a huge chunk of the Blue Cross plans are now for-profit. Anthem is a for-profit company. Mm -hmm. um, and they have, I want to say, 24 maybe states that they operate in. Um, and there are a couple of other for-profits, uh, HCSC, et cetera. And then the rest of them are individual state nonprofits. So Blue Cross is kind of half and half. Half nonprofit, half okay. for-profit, mm -hmm. publicly traded. Um, and when you look at, you know, yes, uh, Aetna got purchased by CVS, but you look at some of the other companies like United and they've started to sort of branch out from being just a standalone insurance company. What most people don't understand is United Healthcare is the second largest employer of physicians in the country. Hmm. They've started to get into the delivery of care by buying up physicians and physician practices. Um, only the government employs more doctors than United right. Healthcare. Um, others, Cigna still is mostly a standalone insurance company. Um, you've got Humana and, and Centene and, mm -hmm. and a few others, but, 
Um, but yeah, they're all sort of branching out a little bit um, with, like I said, with Blue Cross being about half for-profit and half non-profit. Do we see a difference between the the for-profit affiliates and the non-profit affiliates of Blue Cross, either in quality of you know the plans that they provide or uh, the quality of doctors that they see? Um, well, That's kind of a loaded question, I yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, the reason why I chuckle is because for a while in my career, I worked for a non-profit, Kaiser Permanente's non-profit. Mm-hmm. And I can remember one year that I was there, and this is early in my career, and I'm still sort of, you know, big eyed and do it, you know, and, and a little wet behind the ears and, and like, wow, you know, this is business. And I can remember talking to somebody at corporate and I said, wait a minute. So we had $12 billion in revenue and a billion dollars in profit. And he said, no, no, Ron, we didn't make any profit. We're a nonprofit company. We can't make profit. And I said, well, we had a billion dollars left over. What is that if it's not profit? Mm-hmm. And he said, that's retained earnings. And I said, what's the difference? He goes, we don't, we don't pay taxes on that. That's the difference. Mm. And, and that, what struck me is really when you look at the difference in how they operate between a United Healthcare uh, or an Anthem and let's say a Blue Cross of North Carolina, which is a nonprofit entity, mm-hmm. the only difference is how much, whether they pay taxes or not. They still right. make profit. They just call it retained earnings um, and they don't have to pay taxes on it. Yeah, you know, one of the, there's a line in in the Unplanned movie that came out not too long ago where they quote the one of the regional directors of Planned Parenthood reminding one of their employees that you know nonprofit is a tax status; it's not a business right. model. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't mean you, it doesn't mean you give all your money away. It doesn't mean that you lose money. That's not a great business model. It's just a right. tax status. You're absolutely right. So then when you have something like Aetna CVS, how does that change the dynamic of insurance when you're owned by a pharmaceutical retail chain? Boy, that's or does it change question. it at all? Because I, I remember there, there was lots of, you know, CVS or Aetna was going to require people to go to CVS, and I don't know if they've done that or not. I don't know if that would be legal or not. But, I mean, how, how has that changed the dynamic of, of companies that, you know, purchase Aetna insurance for their employees? Um, it, it's a great question, and we don't think we've fully seen yet how it all is going to play out. I will tell you what my concerns or suspicions are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you, know, you, can, you can predict a lot of stuff if you follow the money and you understand where motivations are. And, and a for-profit company like Aetna CVS, their goal is to maximize their shareholders' investment. That's what they're supposed to do. Okay, that's what every for-profit company is supposed to do. So if you say, okay, how are they going to maximize shareholder investment, increase stock price? Well, that's to improve profits. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can start to control various parts of the purchasing, if you can, if you're a, a pharmacy distribution company and an insurance company, well, you can start to sell policies that have requirements to use your pharmacies or incentives to use your pharmacies, lower copay if you go to your Mm -hmm. pharmacy versus something else. And since CVS owns the largest PBM, Pharmacy Benefit Manager, you can also develop policies that focus on one drug over another, which is how you can make more Hmm. money in the rebate system. So we don't know yet, and we've not fully seen it, what all is going to happen. But this does raise some concerns about what happens when their profit motivation, either to use drug A versus drug B, is not aligned with what that patient needs. Right. That's where the real question or rub becomes in is corporate profit being put above what that patient needs. And then what's the outcome of that? I, I am aware that some states have passed laws prohibiting white bagging. Do you think there'll be a federal white bagging law that might prevent CVS from or prevent CVS from requiring Aetna to use their pharmacies? Um, I think it will be extremely difficult at the federal level um, because it's extremely difficult right now to get anything passed at the federal level because if there's one side of the aisle that likes it, the other side is immediately going to be opposed to it. So um, there's going to be some push for it um, and there's some logical reasons for it, but I think it'll be extremely difficult in the next couple years to really get anything like that done. And I guess I should clarify too, and you can correct me where, where I get this wrong. Is white bagging is is a uh, is a policy where you require a patient or a doctor to purchase from a t- particular pharmacy. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a lot of different um, strategies 
that will require a doctor to purchase from a certain specialty pharmacy or pharmacy mm-hmm. you know, system. Um, there's a lot of strategies around trying to force doctors to prescribe one drug over the other. Um, things like what they call fail first, which is, oh, well, right. you can't get the really good drug until you fail this other drug first. Right. Um, you know, prior authorizations, pushing to certain things. So there's a whole host of strategies to try to um, force down a specific channel, either to save money or to utilize a certain manufacturer's drug because you get a better rebate from them. Um, and a lot of that stuff gets is under high scrutiny, but it's really difficult to legislate it out. So leaving um, CVSSI and taking a look at, you know, Anthem, Cigna, United, they both saw record profit growth and record share increases, share price increases uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think they're starting to taper off a little bit. But in how was it that they were able to do that uh, during a time when it seems like more people was were using the health care that they had? Well, so there was a couple things that were going on. And that were not by design of the insurance carriers. It was just sort of luck of the draw, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were other industries that that faced either a huge expansion in their business model and others that got crushed. I mean, you look at the travel industry, man, they got they had a rough couple of years. Right. Um, you look at, well, I mean, we're, we're speaking via Zoom. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people didn't know what Zoom was three years ago? And right. now look at them. So... Um, one of the things the insurance industries, they got a real boon were two different things that happened during COVID. One is, even though there was this focus of all these people that were in the hospital, what people forget is there was a huge period of time where we weren't doing any elective services, where you couldn't get an elective knee operation, right, where you couldn't right. get certain things. There were other things that people just didn't do because they were worried about it. They didn't get their screening mammogram. They didn't go for that you know, colonoscopy or whatever. So all of those claims that would have been paid didn't happen. But the insurance companies were still collecting all of their premium. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like an auto, well, the same thing happened, very similar thing happened with um, a lot of auto insurance manufacturer uh, companies made really good profits in the early part of COVID. Why? People weren't going anywhere. If I'm not driving to and from the office or I'm not driving to the beach because of all the lockdowns and everything, then there were much fewer auto accidents. And so they didn't have to pay out as much in claims. Um, so that was one. The other is, and, and this is sound a little morbid and I don't mean it to be, it's just, it's the numbers and the math. Um, we know that about 5% of the population consumes half of all the healthcare expenses. Right. Okay. So it's a very mm-hmm. small portion of people. We've talked about that a lot. Right. Well, those are the very people that COVID hit hardest. Because they're the people with comorbidities, COPD and and obesity and diabetes and everything. So in essence, what COVID did was, from an actuarial perspective, it almost cleansed their book. The the million people, almost a million people now that have died, the bulk of them had some sort of comorbid condition that was going to be ongoing expenses to care for that diabetes or COPD. And they passed away, which means they're no longer chewing up any of that money. Mm Mm-hmm. And so their book, if you will, or their covered lives got much healthier because of COVID. Same thing happened with Medicare. The Medicare um, life of Medicare before it runs out of money got extended because Hmm. of this. Um, And so they had some pretty record profits because of those two things. Uh, Out of curiosity, do you know how far Medicare got extended? Its Um, lifespan, that is. I want to say like a year and a half. Um, of the financial life center was one analysis I saw um, because of how many elderly people were affected by COVID and hmm. passed away and now are no longer, you know, needing to, to receive services. Here's a, this is a little bit of, of an aside, but it's, it's something that just, you know, popped into my head with the fact that people who are employed now are the ones paying for the Medicare and social security systems. How is it that we can even say that there is a finite lifespan of something if it's constantly being funded by, um, you know, people oh. currently employed today? Oh, it's it's easy. It's the bathtub model. Okay, you think about a bathtub. Mm-hmm. We've got a certain amount of water flowing in. That's the funds that we're collecting from current employees paying into the the Medicare fund, and they got a drain at the bottom, mm-hmm. and that's the amount of claims going out to pay for people that are get you know, that, that age into Medicare and that, that, um, require 
services while you know while in Medicare. Well, the drain is happening faster than the spigot, and okay. so it's a fairly easy calculation mm-hmm. to go. When is the tub going to go empty? Um, All right. So in that sense, I'm saying a little bit with Medicare. I know a lot of these companies, um, actually, I think all of these insurance companies we've talked about today provide some sort of a Medicare Advantage plan. And I believe it was uh, Wendell Potter earlier this year, and I'll put this in the show notes if I can find it, pointed out that roughly 70% of their profits or profit growth came from their Medicare Advantage plans. How is it that they can get that much money from doing something like that? Oh, well, so... um through a number of things that happened, both some changes in the way that, um, uh, you know, that the government um, incentivizes this and allows for it, um, and the insurance companies realizing they could make profit there, a lot of them entered into this market to provide those plans. In essence, rather than the government, you know, paying out those claims, they just transfer that money in bulk of what they would have paid, if you will, to the insurance company. The insurance company then provides that care and, and pays the claims. And if they've got money left over, they make profit. So it's it's really just reducing what the government would have paid by paying each of those individual claims. And then they're, in essence, sort of buying insurance for those elderly people from United or Blue Cross or all those various um, uh, insurance companies. And just to clarify what I was saying, the her, the articles he's got up here is uh, 2021, 72% of United Healthcare's $222.9 billion revenue came from taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And then... There's also the vast majority of Centene's and Humana's $209 billion came from taxpayers uh, as well. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and that's what they're doing. They're just, you know, rather than the government pay for all those claims, they're just buying insurance and transferring that money over to Humana and Centene and United, and they, they make money at it and like it. So then as we look at um, how the Anthem Centene's signas of the world operate um is are is the way that they operate the reason that we have healthcare expensive healthcare here in the united states um it's not the reason um there isn't a reason there there's multiple reasons i mean this is um healthcare in the united states and it's it's um, it's cost and it's inflation is a perfect storm of events um, there's a lot of things that feed into it. One of them is the way that we pay for it. Um, it violates some very simple economic rules um, that make for efficient marketplaces. The first and foremost is that the purchaser is not the consumer. Whenever you've got a scenario where the purchaser is not the consumer, you run into problems. Um, you know what I the way I, the analogy is for po- folks is say, well, imagine if your um, employer said, hey, as an employee benefit, okay, I'm going to buy you a new car every two years with mm-hmm. a $500 deductible. You pay the first $500, I'll pay the rest of the price of the car. That's like insurance, okay? Now, if that's me and it's my employer, boy, there's a Ferrari dealership with my name on it. Right. Because exactly. I'm now insulated from the cost. I'm the consumer but not the purchaser. I'm spending somebody else's money and, man, Here's a really nice Ferrari that's going to be in my garage. That's a huge violation, of it, and, and that's what insurance is. Um, another is the, you know, you shouldn't have an area where the supplier controls demand. Well, in our health insurance system, in our delivery system, think about the doctor is the supplier, okay? They're the ones who's supplying the services. They also, to a large degree, control demand. How many times have you gone into a doctor's office and said, look, I, I'm going to order a series of lab tests and I'm going to order an MRI. And I'm gonna, you're going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want any of that stuff. Usually it's like, okay, whatever you want, doc. And they can really, to some degree, control the demand of their services um, by how often they bring you back and the things they order. So, And there's a num- number of other scenarios. But part of the way that we've set up how healthcare gets paid and financed, being the consumer is not the purchaser, creates a problem. And that is an inflationary problem. So I want to stick on that last note you talked about with doctors sort of controlling the uh, demand for various things in healthcare, and that has been a talking point that I that we have seen in recent weeks uh, and months from Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, in particular, in their demands to cut reimbursement for a number of their uh, people that are in network or risk kicking them out of the network. Granted. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know how successful we, we've talked about this before. We don't know how successful this will be now that no surprises has been reverted back to the way it was supposed to be. Uh, but back when the QPA was the only thing you could look at inside the, the dispute resolution, it would have probably been a good idea for some of these insurance companies to kick people out of network. Mm-hmm. But what Blue Cross has said on a couple of times, Blue Cross North Carolina, is that a lot of these doctors are being paid too much and they're just greedy and looking for profits. And that's something that we've heard from them. It's something that we've possibly heard from, um, of course, you don't hear it as much anymore during COVID, but it was a talking point of people like Bernie Sanders who were saying that doctors get paid too much for certain procedures or they're ordering too many procedures. How often does that actually happen and do doctors actually get paid too much? Well, so a couple of things there, you know, um, one of them is whenever people talk about, you know, too much or whatever, I say, well, you know, define too much. And you've Mm -hmm. also got to put it into terms of our system. Okay. Um, I know there are people who think that basketball players get paid too much, you know, that, right. that somebody can hit a three point shot making a hundred million dollars a year is ridiculous. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's part of what you get in a, you know, in sort of a free market economy. Um, but the big thing is whenever I try to get into that discussion, it's like, okay, well, we're talking about and specifically with this and the NSA thing, hospital based physicians, anesthesiologists, um, radiologists, emergency medicine, physicians, uh, and, uh, um, pathologists, so mm-hmm. anesthesia, ER, rad, pathology, that kind of stuff. So if they, and they have a monopoly sort of position within their hospital. And so that's the theory is, well, they get paid too much. They make too much money. Um, and so if we just fix that, this will fix some of that stuff. Well, if that were true, then you should see it in the numbers. You should see their average income much higher than other physicians. And you should see their income going up year over year. If, if you've got a monopoly position, you use that position to get you know, greater than, than expected results. And the data really doesn't prove, show that at all, okay? What most people don't understand is, for example, you take anesthesia, okay? Mm-hmm. The average dermatologist makes more money than the average anesthesiologist. Hmm. Well, gosh, if they really had this monopoly, why is that? Dermatology has no monopoly. Um, emergency medicine makes more than dermatology. Radiology makes or makes less than dermatology. Radiology makes less than dermatology. Well, gosh, that just doesn't seem like it. So, you know, A, they're not the highest paid specialists, um, and they're below a lot of other specialists or other physicians. And then if you look at over time, Physician income in general has not kept up with inflation. Um, it's actually been slightly losing ground to inflation. So the data doesn't support this idea that doctors just make too much. Do they make more than doctors in other countries? Absolutely. They make more than they do in England. They make more than they do in Canada. But that can be said for almost every profession here. Lawyers make more here than they do mm-hmm. in Canada or England. That's a result of the fact that we have a very wealthy economy. Um, so I, I, I really dismiss the idea that this is all about doctor's salaries and they make too much money, and specifically that these hospital-based physicians have extorted their position into high profits. Um, yes, there are anecdotal stories of bad actors in every profession, and there are mm-hmm. anecdotal stories of bad actors in the hospital-based physicians really extorting their position. But that can happen in every industry. And plus, too, with these doctor settings and the emergency settings, I mean, this is the care where you need it immediately and quickly. It's not a, hey, call and make an appointment in a couple of weeks and we'll see what we can do. This is the, you have an emergency and you have to get it done today. It's like calling the plumber at, you know, two o'clock in the morning to fix the spout that's spraying everywhere. Right, right, right. And, and, And that's an important distinction to make between, let's say, our system and some other systems. Part of what we're paying for in hospital-based providers, ER, et cetera, is that um, ability to have instant access and capacity. And we really saw that on how well our system handled COVID um, compared to some others. I mean, we saw horrible sites of the Italian system almost breaking Mm -hmm. down. We saw horrible sites of the Indian system, of the English system, et cetera, really having struggling to meet any basic needs. And to a large degree, what we had in our in our country was system that flexed and handled the capacity very well. People were not being turned away from the hospitals. They were being handled. 
And in, in some senses, we sort of got worried about things like New York City and built, you know, these temporary hospitals that we never really had to use. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, yes, do we, we pay more here? Yeah, but when we needed it, it was there. Plus, too, I mean, we have, you know, we're not relying on outdated technology in, in our healthcare system. I saw something not too long ago about uh, the NHS was getting a little bit worried because they're still the world's largest purchaser of pagers. And the last company to make pagers in Japan is getting ready to stop making pagers. And they weren't sure what they were going to do to replace that type of system. And we don't, I mean, I went to a GI doctor not long ago and he still had a pager, but we're not really relying on that in our emergency setting. And sometimes, you know, the cost of upgrading technology is expensive, but it's necessary and makes things more reliable. Yeah, I, it's interesting to me that um, a lot of people like to talk about the expense of things, and we should. I mean, we've got to focus on that. But that discussion ends when it's you or your family member being rolled into an ER. Right. You know, at that point, it's, I, man, I need the very best, you know, and, and that's understandable. But it's interesting how that, that cost discussion ends at the ER doorstep. Let's get back a little bit to talking about some of the insurance companies, because that was our, our main topic for today. And one of the things that we've heard before is, you know, if we had if we take away the profits of some of these insurance companies, if we, you know, if we either make them all nonprofit or we, you know, make them force them to hand over their profits in some way, I'm not sure how you could legally do that. But if we were able to do that in some way, um, that that would lower the cost overall of healthcare here in the United States. Uh, do you think it would? Yeah, this is one of my favorite ones. And I love this argument. Of, well, it's all, you know, if we just had all the profit from the big insurance companies, boy, that'd be enough money to pay for healthcare for everybody. Oh, my God, no. And not even close. So if you look at the, the top big for-profit insurance companies, there's six of them, okay? Their combined profit, and this was in a wonderful profit year because of COVID, mm -hmm. a little over $60 billion. Now, $60 billion is a lot of money. But compared to what we pay on healthcare, it's nothing. So if you took all of their profits and used it to help pay down healthcare, it would lower the cost of healthcare in this country by 1.5%, okay? Hmm. If you said, well, I wanna take the 60 billion and get rid of the uninsured population, okay? You could basically uh, provide free healthcare for 15% of the uninsured population, that's it. There would still be 85% that were still uninsured. It's not that much money. And when people get upset about the amount of profit that insurance companies make, they've got to put that in perspective on how they fit in with other companies. Okay. Right. So if you look at the top 25 for-profit companies in the, in, in this country and how much they make in profit on that top 25 list, there's only one insurance company, United healthcare hmm. and it's 17th. Okay. There's only two pharma companies on there, Pfizer and Merck. Okay. So what are the other, you know, 23 companies? Well, there's seven companies in financial services and banking, seven, including the number one company, Berkshire Hathaway, at $81 billion of profit. Well, should we really be making that much money on just financial transactions? I mean, is that dirty money like right. insurance company money is? If you add up those seven companies, they made $208 billion. That's over three times the profit of the top six insurance companies. The other thing that's on there are tech companies, mm -hmm. Apple, Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, Oracle, okay? There are five of those in the top 25 list. If you add them up, they're at $137 billion. That's, all, that's over twice what the health insurance companies make. So my, my point to this is, first of all, there's nowhere near enough money in health insurance company profits to pay for anything. And it's not exorbitant compared to other industries. And if you're going to attack the insurance industry, and trust me, they have things that you should attack them for. Don't get me, I'm not trying mm -hmm. to defend them completely, but if you're going to try to attack them to say, well, the profit is bad and we should use it in other places, there are other industries that produce nothing, okay? Like right. the financial services industries or their tech industries that are making huge profit on techs. Why not go after them? Well, I think the reason is we feel like we're at least getting something of value from those. And it just feels wrong to say somebody should make profit on my illness. Okay? Right. And, and it's an easy target. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because a little while ago we were 
I don't know if we were necessarily criticizing, but we were pointing out that some of these big companies like uh, United Healthcare are branching out into other uh, things than just insurance. And I can think of just of the ones that you mentioned on that list of the of the non healthcare companies that are doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. Alphabet, the parent company of Google, has a drone program, and mm-hmm. as we pointed out on our on our flatlining newsletter last week or a couple of weeks ago, that they were getting ready to partner with Walgreens to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, over-the-counter medications and ice cream. And even one of the weirder ones I thought on there, because Berkshire Hathaway doing mostly financial stuff, they own a jewelry chain across the United States. So they all, you know, they're all, they have their fingers in different in different hats. So then if the insurance company profit isn't good enough, would you say that it's a good idea to take profit from these other companies? Should we have a big tax on profit from a lot of these companies to fund things like our insurance? What, what, where can we get some money for that? Well, to me, I think there's a couple of different factors there. Um, one, there's a whole argument about what is an appropriate level of corporate tax, and people always talk about how Bezos didn't pay any taxes. Right. And, and so that's a, let me set that aside. There's, there's an appropriate argument there, but you know, what is an appropriate level of corporate tax? But then there needs to be a discussion about is, is profit bad? Is, mm-hmm. is personal income bad? Um, what do these companies do with this profit? What what happens when their stock price goes up? Let's not forget that this is whether it's United Healthcare or Berkshire Hathaway or Apple or whatever, that when their stock prices went up, I'm pretty sure that part of my retirement savings includes a mutual fund that has mm-hmm. these companies. Right. So I got richer. Okay. So in 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 a lot of when I worked for Cigna, they used to always remind us, remember our stock price funds the retirement of that teacher, you know, mm-hmm. that put into her 401k. And it does. Okay. The other thing is is that those profits are used for certain things. Now one could say, well, you know, should somebody have spent forty four billion dollars for Twitter? Well, that's a subjective sort of thing, but they're used for certain things. And when those profits are turned into income, you know, raises for their employees or big money for their CEO, well, then it's done with income taxes. So there's this basic concept that I have that, that look, there's only three things to potentially do with money. Um, one of them is to just destroy it and burn it. Nobody really does that. Okay, so let's get mm-hmm. rid of that. Yeah. The other is to either save it or invest it. And both of those things are good for a free market economy. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be an appropriate level of corporate tax or that we should think about how corporates dot corporations dot taxes, et cetera. I'm just saying if you attack that money somewhere to spend somewhere else, things are going to happen that are bad. Like stock price is going to go down and my 401k is going to go down. I can't retire as early mm-hmm. or incomes are going to go down and that's less personal income tax for the federal government. It's, it's a, it's not an easy target to just go, I want that money and think there's nothing else bad that's going to happen. And then the second piece, which is the real question of where are we going to get the money to pay for health care, um, is a bigger issue. And to me, the crux of that issue is we've got to start figuring out how to spend less money because we're not going to be able to um, – you take that bathtub analogy. If you make the drain smaller, you plug the drain, you don't need as much water going in. That's the key is we, you know, we figure out how do we spend less money and get healthier. And, you know, that, that's a good transitioning point to, to something else I wanted to talk about. And I came across, as I was preparing for this program today, the a in-premise article, which is published by Hillsdale College uh, here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's taken from a talk by uh, John Steele Gordon, who's an author and historian about uh, American economics. And it's from uh, September 2018. I'll make sure we put it in the show notes. And he has a couple of uh, prescriptions of how to, you know, make healthcare more affordable here in the United States. And I wanted to run them by you to see to see what you thought and give some of your analysis on them if you're okay with that. Sure, absolutely. All right. So the first one that he points out is to have transparent prices on uh, medical services. And I believe, in, in, if I'm not mistaken, that this did become a law not too long ago. Uh, but he gives an example of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, which publishes the cost for knee replacements, mastectomies, stuff like that, right there on their website. And his idea is that because you're able to see the prices and compare what the prices is from you know, one hospital to the next, that you're going to be able to make things more competitive and then drive down the cost overall. What do you think about that? I think anytime you can add more information in purchasing decisions, 
um, including pricing information, quality information, outcome information, it produces a better marketplace. Um, we have so much access to information on other purchasing decisions right now and so little access to information on healthcare. So I think it's absolutely a, a great first step and a piece to the puzzle. Um, you know, some people feel like the way to do that is with changing healthcare to be what's called a defined benefit. Um, instead of saying, I'll pay whatever the price of the MRI is minus 20%, say, I'll, you know, I'll pay $1,000 for an MRI and then have the consumer, the patient go around and shop for where they can get it for a thousand, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, transparency and pricing is a wonderful first step. It needs to include transparency for quality and outcomes and all that other stuff. But I think it's great. Now, in that sense, then, you know, with the current employer system that we have now, you know, we have a deductible and then anything over the deductible or the out-of-pocket cost is going to be covered for most people and for most mm-hmm. services. How the excuse me, how then would that affect the idea of like, well, yeah, mastectomy might be, you know, $6,500, but if my deductible is a thousand, I don't have to worry about the rest of that. So what does it matter if I find a, you know, a a cheaper place somewhere else? Well, and that's, again, that then that's one of the other things we'd have to fix is the purchaser not being the consumer, Mm -hmm. vice versa. But also a lot of people, even though they have a deductible, they'll also have a coinsurance. They're going to have to pay a portion of that. Mm-hmm. And so let's say you knew that I got to pay 20% and, you know, my knee surgery at this place is going to be $8,000 and that this place across town is going to be 5,000. Okay. Well, that 20% is real money to me. Now I can make a decision. I, I will say though, the other thing to keep in mind, transparency to this is very difficult in healthcare because it's not like buying a loaf of bread. Right. Um, going in and saying, well, how much is an MRI? Well, there are all sorts of different, you know, versions of that MRI. You know, are they going to use contrast? Or are they not? Sometimes they don't know until they start the study, and then they say, "Oh, we're going to have to use contrast." So it's 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 not as easy as just saying, "What's a loaf of bread?" Right. Uh, the next one that he has on here uh, is has to do more with malpractice and malpractice lawsuits, and that is that he thinks we should get rid of the uh, American rule, where both sides pay for their own legal expense, and adopt the English rule, where and what they have in Canada and other parts of the common law world, where the loser of a lawsuit pays the expenses of both sides. And I think his point here being, he didn't really elaborate on it, but I think his point being that the fact that there's risk in losing a lawsuit shows that you're less likely to bring a malpractice lawsuit. What do you think about that? Um, I actually would, I have a sort of a different twist on that. First of all, I think malpractice is an enormous problem, and it leads to defensive medicine, um, where we know that there's a fair amount of things that are done purely to create a better defense. Um, and we know that what happens in these lawsuits is you don't have to win very many of them if you're an attorney because there are home runs if you win a big one. Mm-hmm. To me, the biggest problem with malpractice is I don't think that malpractice cases should be decided by a jury. And my, my argument is if I'm a physician and I'm on you know, the hook for a malpractice case, I should get a jury of my peers, which means other physicians. Mm-hmm. So my, my proposal is that you take malpractice cases. First of all, get rid of most of the punitive damages. We're talking about compensatory damages here, mm-hmm. where if somebody purely commits an act of malpractice and it, and it created compensatory damages, you should be, you should be damaged for the, awarded for that damage. But have the case go before what would look more like an appellant court. And these would be three physicians or five physicians um, who are who do just this because they're able to de- determine whether or not this was truly malpractice. Um, in, in North Carolina, um, John Edwards, who ran for president years ago, mm-hmm. I think he still holds the record for the most multi-million dollar settlements. And most of them were malpractice cases. And they involved... Um, children who were born with certain defects. And most of the physicians, all the physicians who ever looked at these said this was not malpractice. There was nothing that doctor could have done Mm -hmm. to change that outcome. But Edwards did a great job of getting juries in tears. He would talk like he was the child. Why are they doing this to me? I just want to be healthy. And these people would feel terrible for the parents who wouldn't. But they're not in a position to determine malpractice. They're not clinicians. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of changes to tort reform that I think should should happen to help fix that. 
All right. Uh, the next one uh, is one that we, we've been talking about through most of the program today, and that's that we should get consumers to care about the cost of medical care. And part of that is, uh, you know, bringing the consumer closer to the actual, you know, paying of the per- particular procedure. And his idea is that we, you know, generous, you know, health insurance policies cover pretty much everything. And he says they shouldn't. You shouldn't be, you know, he's he, he seems to believe that your insurance should not be covering a sniffle or a scraped knee. Um, and he prescribes as the alternative to this is to have, you know, insurance that provides major medical insurance, you know, for something like a heart transplant, but having a health savings account instead of routine care. What do you think about that sort of uh, idea? Yeah, this one's a tough one um, because the economic concept works where you say, well, look, let's not provide for the little stuff. Let's provide for the major stuff. But how do you apply that across the board? Because for you know, for you or I, we may say, well, that works very well and I can handle the little stuff. But there's a huge part of the population that really couldn't handle mm-hmm. the little stuff. And then you run into the concern about, well, they're going to avoid primary or preventative care because they can't afford it and things are going to get worse. So it, it's it, it, the concept makes sense. Applying it across the board becomes difficult because of the different income levels. Now, one sort of alternative to that that I agree with is, yes, get the consumer more engaged in this. But I think we're missing the boat on getting the consumer more engaged in improving their overall health. Um, you and I both know that if we get four speeding tickets and a DUI, our car insurance is going to go through the roof. Right. Okay? Because we've made some bad choices. Yep. You know, me me more liking a, likely on the speeding than you. But um, <laughs> So we understand that consequence. You could reverse that in healthcare. I, I don't necessarily want to punish people for making bad choices on their diet that leads to diabetes, et cetera. But we, we could reward them for making good choices. We could take the folks who are diabetic, let's say, and if they can show that they're following physicians' advice and they're reducing their diet and they're taking their meds, et cetera, which we know will save enormous amounts of money long ter- downstream, why not give them a break on their insurance? Heck, that could be a rebate. Car insurances do it. Mm-hmm. If you have an accident for two years, get a rebate back. Mm-hmm. Now we start to incentivize people to get healthier. You know, if you're maintaining control of your cholesterol, hey, here's a hundred bucks back or whatever, that would pay off in in, in huge amounts in the future. So um, I, I like the concept of we need to get people more involved. It's hard to do it um, the way that he described it. I'd like to do it more on rewarding them for changing health habits and good behaviors. And, and there are some companies out there, and I've worked for a company before, that mm-hmm. if, if you do, you know, if you do certain health things, you know, if you consistently walk 10,000 steps a day for a month or you don't or you go without smoking for a year or you do, you know, whatever incentives they might offer, they might offer some sort of cash bonus at the end of the year. I mean, I think the last company I worked for, it wasn't big. It was like maybe a couple hundred dollars. But um, that sort of stuff, I think you're right. It has because when you're doing healthier, then you're not having to pay as much for insurance yeah. and then your company's not having to pay as much for the insurance. Um, I, I do like the idea, though, in general of health savings accounts only because it puts a little bit more control, I believe, into the consumer's hand. You know, they can they are more apt at seeing where some of that money is going. How do we is it possible to incentivize something like health savings accounts or in the system that we have in the United States? Is it just basically something that's going to be very difficult to push forward? Well, no, we absolutely could do it. Um, And this may sound sort of funny, but I'm dead serious about it. I think, you know, hire Amazon to do it. They've got a bunch of stuff figured out and they understand how to implement things very, very well. (laughs) What I mean by that is if you talk about health savings accounts to most people, they sort of understand it, but they're not quite sure how it works. And it's a little bit too hard, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, yeah, I could do it through my employer and I'm not quite sure. There's some money goes into it. And then how do I pay for stuff with it? It just, it's, it's hard. Right. And I don't like hard. Um, well, heck, I mean, I'm going to Amazon. And there's one button purchasing, and mm-hmm. then I get it tomorrow. Yep. If we made the system much easier and much more able to be understood without a lot of the sort of the, the restrictions on it right now, I think we could go a long way in doing just that. And I agree with you that, you know, that it creates a wonderful incentive um, for, for people to sort of do the right thing. 
The third, or excuse me, the fourth uh, thing he points out, and the final thing he points out in this is is kind of a it is you would you might describe it as a little bit morbid, but it's something that um, it, you know it it is true, and he points out that there is no cure for old age. And we need to, you know, be and he. And this is kind of like what we talked about before with things like Agilhelm. Um, You know, there is no cure for old age. So do, as we grow older, there we should stop looking at certain things uh, in our healthcare and stop trying to prevent certain things that are, you know, only going to extend life by a year, six months, stuff like that. What do you think about that particular one? And that may be more of a moral question than it is an economic question, well, or perhaps it's a bit of both, but. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I actually um, I, I completely agree, and I think it's a bigger issue. Mm -hmm. And I think the issue is what are we going to pay for and what are we not going to pay for? Um, and I think we've got to take that decision out of the hands of treating physicians. It does not belong with them, and we put them in a bad spot and out of the hands of family members, okay? You know, to have that physician say, look, you know, your father is 92 and we shouldn't do this mm -hmm. is wrong. We can't do that to them. That's not their job. And it's hard to do it to a family. And, in, and it's all over the spectrum. It's beginning of life. It's how much money we spend on extremely premature infants that are never going to have any clinical outcome. How long do we do that? How much money do we spend? How much do we spend at end of life? And it's not just that prolonging life. I mean... I, my grandfather uh, years ago was in a nursing home and at the time he was in a nursing home, it was obvious he was never getting out. Mm -hmm. um, and he had had a leg amputated at the knee because of diabetes. And I was there one day and thank goodness my father um, had a medical power of attorney and a guy came in and was fitting him for something. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm fitting him for his prosthetic. And I said, what do you mean a prosthetic? He said, oh yeah, well, Medicare will pay for this. So we're going to get him a prosthetic. I'm like, he weighs 92 pounds. He's never getting out of this bed if he had three good legs. Why are we doing this? Well, Medicare will pay for it. That's not the right answer. Right. And, and luckily, you know, we had the wherewithal and everything to go stop. And my father told him, because he had power of attorney, go away. You're not doing it. We don't authorize this. So there's a lot of things that we shouldn't do. And yes, end of life issues. There are times when we should say, look, that heart surgery is not a good thing to do. And let's not do it. But that needs to be a more clinical, less emotional decision. Mm -hmm. um, and that would save huge amounts of money across the across the spectrum. We do things that we because we can, not because we should. And, you know, it's interesting you point out how much money that would save. And I think the Agilhelm thing is a perfect example because this is an example where the Centers for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Services said they're not going to cover this Alzheimer's drug. Uh, in part because it's not it doesn't seem to be super effective and it's very very expensive um, but I find it interesting that I have seen more op-eds in the Wall Street Journal about Adjahelm lately and how horrible it is that the CMS isn't going to cover it because right. you know it's it's just funny to see them the people who are generally completely against government spending are now mad at the federal government right. for not covering a drug that doesn't work and is very expensive well yeah and, and the other thing that I find interesting is, because what we're really talking about is sort of rationing, mm -hmm. okay? And it is. And every country rations, and we don't like it. We don't like the R word, but it is. Is on, There's one scenario where we're completely comfortable with it and we get it, and another scenario where we aren't. All right, the scenario where we get it. We understand as a society that there aren't enough organs available for everybody who needs a transplant. There's a limited supply of organs. Mm -hmm. And so we've got this system and everybody's comfortable with it to where those organs go to the people who have the best chance of a long, healthy life afterwards and successful surgery. We know, for example, and we're fine with the fact that if you are an active alcoholic, you do not get a liver organ transplant because you're just going to kill this one. Okay. Right. That if you're an active smoker, you're not getting a lung transplant. We're fine with that. We know that people die every day on the organ transplant waiting list just because they don't get up to the top, and that's unfortunate, but we get it because there's a limited supply, and we understand that. But when we talk about there's a limited supply of money, it goes out the window. And that's what you're talking about with Algem, saying, look, we're not going to spend this much money for a drug that has marginal benefit at best. Now, is there a patient out there that probably would benefit from this drug? Sure there is. And that's hard for that patient. And, and, you know, my father had Alzheimer's, so it's a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. But it's still the same issue. We don't have an unlimited supply of money. 
And so should we be spending that money in areas with very little benefit or for large expense, just like we wouldn't give a transplant to somebody that we know it's not going to work well with or not going to work for long enough? So that's just, to me, that's the interesting part about how that, that perception changes um, from, let's say, organs to money. And on that note, we're just about out of time for this program this week. So, Ron, I wanted to ask, did you have any final questions about uh, the future of big insurance here in the United States or of our health care in general? Well, you know, first of all, I don't think big insurance is going anywhere. It's too ingrained in our system. These companies are big companies. They employ a lot of people. And I'm not sure they should go anywhere. Do I think there should be um, different rules about what insurance companies can do and how they have to behave? Absolutely. Much like... You know, OSHA was developed because manufacturers weren't, you know, doing the right thing all the time. Um, but I don't think they're going to go anywhere. And I definitely don't think that, you know, it would, it would solve any of our problems and probably make some of them worse if we went to a Medicare for All or a government-funded. Um, that's not addressing the real issues. And the real issues can be addressed with the same system we have now um, with some guardrails around it, some better controls on it and just better incentives and better um, approaches to how we handle this stuff. All right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to call it for this uh, particular program for the Flatlining Podcast. Ron, thanks for joining us again this week. No problem. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.